I want to ask you to do something. I want you to picture your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, school uh, mate, somebody close to you, and you have a kind of a relationship with them, maybe a close, doesn't really matter, but they ask you this question, and, and I'd like you to write it down if you can. Just grab a sheet of paper and just write you one sentence. It can't be a run-on paragraph, one sentence. And the answer is this. You have to give them a one sentence or one line or one statement. What is the gospel? I hear people talking about the gospel all the time. What is, go ahead, write. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? I, your friend says, I hear people talking about it. They talk about the good news. They talk about the gospel. Can you explain it to me? Can you tell me what it is? Now, while you're writing that, I want to tell you that when, when I do the baptism classes, I always ask that question sometime within the class. I say, so what is the gospel? And it's interesting to me how many people do not know the gospel. I'll know it when I see it, but I can't really express it. I can't really write it down. I can't really explain it. Because what we're going to look at this, uh, this morning is the gospel. We've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're, we're talking about what happens when God reboots our heart, when he turns our heart and opens our eyes, and he does it in, in individuals in a city called Corinth, and he takes people who are rich and poor, people who are educated and none, people who are slave or free, and he brings them into this new thing he calls the church. And, and how, will that church, how will that church impact the city of Corinth? And we're reading through Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, and we're seeing it had a lot of problems, but it had a lot of gifts and a lot of opportunities. And, and so what we're going to talk about today is the hope. Paul says that when you come to Christ, when God reboots your heart, you get a new hope. You get a new hope. Well, what would you write down for the gospel? Maybe you wrote down this. The gospel is the meaning to life. It's the answer to the meaning to life. Or maybe you wrote down, the gospel is helping the hurting. And certainly there's a portion of the gospel that God calls us to give water to those who are thirsty and to give clothes to those who are naked and to assist the widows and the orphans. And true religion, pure religion is that. Some of you may have written down, it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's relationship, not religion. Or maybe you wrote down, the gospel is good news, and you kind of punted on that, because I already mentioned that, and it's just a rephrase. It's like answering uh, the word with the same word. And I hate it when I look up a word, and it basically uses the same word, and I'm thinking, well, that's not helping me. Paul tells us what the gospel is, and if you want to, I'd encourage you to turn to, to uh, page 879 in the chair Bible, 879 is 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul tells us the gospel. He basically boils the gospel down into a sentence. And here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 879. Uh, I'm going to read at verse 1. Paul writes this to the church of Corinth. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news or gospel I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was of most important and what has also been passed on to me. Here is the gospel, starting right here. Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture said. He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as Scripture said. 
He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So the essence of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. Now, why does he say he was buried? Because that's proof that he was dead. Uh, And then he rose on the third day and was seen by many witnesses. In fact, at one point he was seen by over 500 people at one time. And Paul says, as I'm writing this letter, they're alive. You can go. I can tell you who they are. You can go talk to them right now. They are alive and well. Now. The gospel, is, so that's the statement, and, 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 and I always tell my, my uh, baptism class candidates, the gospel is this, that Christ died for my sins. It's important that you hear for my sins, because just to say he died means nothing. He died for my sins. In fact, the, Mary was told, he shall be called Jesus. Why? For he will save his people, what? From their sins. He died for my sins. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day. So it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. And that's the gospel. And the gospel, if we expand it a little bit, it says that God is holy, and he is just, and I'm not. And in the end, uh, uh, at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before God, who is holy and just, and I'll be judged. Now, I'll either be judged on the basis of my own righteousness... Or my lack of righteousness, a lack of his righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect righteous life in obedience to God. Now, he didn't do this for himself. He did this for us. He came for us. He did it for you and me. He did it so that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not only did he live a perfect life, but he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He became a perfect living sacrifice to God for us. He took our place. Now, the resurrection is proof that God the Father accepted his sacrifice for our sins. Um, his sacrifice satisfied the requirements of God's justice, God's justice and righteousness. Now, why did he die? Now, here's the point. If you don't think you're a sinner or you're not that bad of a sinner, you don't look for a savior. You'll say, well, I'll just go to church. I'll just believe in God. I'll just try to be better than the majority of people. And I already think I am, so I think I'm all right. I'm not perfect, but of course I'm in the topper, higher percentile. So I think I'm going pretty well here. Um, but if you don't think you're such a bad sinner, you probably won't look for a Savior, or you'll think that you can save yourself. But heaven knew better, and heaven sent a Savior. Because heaven knew what we don't often want to admit, that we desperately need a Savior, that we're drowning in sin. The Bible says it, puts it this way. Paul says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And, you know, we think of sin, and sin is first and foremost an affront to a holy God. That God is holy, he's completely holy, and he's righteous and he's just. And sin must be punished. And every one of us missed the mark of God's perfect standard. Um, 
We can't live in the way we must. We, we couldn't live the perfect life even if we tried. And some of us aren't really trying very hard. But uh, the point is, it's, Paul says a little later in Romans, he says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so I want you to see this point that, because you may say, well, why doesn't God just forgive sin and just get it over with? Can he just, did he have to send Jesus to pay the price? Did, did he have to go through all that? Why, he's God after all. Can he just wave his wand and, and just forgive sin? And the point is, well, no, sin must be punished. And that's why he sent Jesus to take our punishment on the cross. And you say, well, I don't know if I, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I, if, I, I just got to believe that God didn't have to go to those extreme measures. And I just want to say to you, every one of us in this room wants justice. Every one of you wants justice. And you don't want justice for yourself. I mean, in a sense, you don't want to be judged yourself, but you want justice. Let me give you a story about justice. Some of you have read this story. On June 15th, this was uh, 2013, just uh, a couple years ago, 16-year-old Ethan Couch he was witnessed going into a Walmart where he stole two cases of beer. He got into his father's SUV with uh, how many were there? There were a number of his friends, seven of, of other of his friends. And they began to drink and they began to drive. He was driving the SUV. About an hour later, he was driving around 70 miles an hour. He went off the side of the road and he plowed into uh, a stranded off the side of the road SUV that was uh, driven by Brianna Mitchell, instantly killing her. He didn't just kill her, because as she was pulled off the side of the road, she had a couple of friends, Holly Boyles, and her daughter were there, Shelby, and they lived nearby, and they came to assist. And at that, uh, shortly before that, a youth pastor... Uh, was there, and his name was uh, Brian Jennings, and he was driving down the road, noticed the car was off the side of the road, and stopped as a good Samaritan to try to help. So as Ethan was driving uh, drunk, he was three times over the legal limit, he plowed into the car, and he killed everyone on the side of the road. Four people died that night. Um, the judge sentenced him uh, not to jail, but to therapy, long-term therapy, because, well, because they felt like it was better for him to be in an inpatient facility than to be in jail. But the defense was that he was suffering from affluenza. I didn't say influenza, not the flu. Affluenza, which was defined as he was so well off, his parents were well off, that he didn't understand the consequences of his actions. That was the defense. He was recently uh, on the Internet seen uh, participating, and I don't know how deeply participating, in an, uh, a drinking game. And after that, shortly after that, his mother and he have disappeared, and there's a nationwide manhunt for them. He was 16 years old when this happened. He's 18 years old now. Now, I, I don't want to get into the details of what the justice, here's what I want you to think. When you hear that story and you think about the families that lost family members, parents that lost a, a daughter, 
a wife that lost a husband. When you hear about that, you say, that's not justice. That's not right. He needs to be punished for what he did. And he wasn't. He's not getting this. Some at the trial said he showed no remorse. Don't know. Uh, The point is, when you hear that story, you immediately, there's a part of you that says, that bothers me. That, That we want justice for those families. That we don't like that. Now, as I said, we're very, the minute you say, well, you, you, but you say, but you, you say, well, why don't those families that just lost their, 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 their loved ones just get over it? Why do they have to take it so hard? What, it, you know, who cares? They care. Because they were the ones that were, it was an affront to them. And we understand that. So it's very easy for us to say to God, why don't God just get over it? created a universe that he said that he wanted us to live in harmony and peace and love and and we don't we live in and violence and and anger and 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 so we come to a place where we say all right i want justice but when we say to god well can't he just get over it well i don't think he can get any over it more than the parents that lost their loved ones But here's the thing. We often look at ourselves and say, yeah, I want justice for them, but I don't really want justice for me. I don't want want people to to make me deal with my sins, with my transgressions. But heaven knew that whether we're willing to admit to our sin and our injustices, that God is just, that God is holy, that sin must be judged. That we live in a universe that if sin isn't judged, if there is no right, if there is no wrong, then, then we understand that's a major problem. And so what heaven did is he sent, God sent his son Jesus to earth as a savior. Jesus came as a savior to save us from sin and death. Those are the two biggest things that he could save us from. And so he offered himself and, and Paul says in uh, verses 4 and 5, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full, that our sins are paid in full. And we don't deserve that. It's not something that, that we've earned or we deserve or we get, you know, chips every time we go to church or every time we say a prayer, every time we do a good deed or every time we give money or every time we serve, there's a chip on our account. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do that God rescued us because we were drowning in sin and death and we are not righteous, we are unrighteous and we desperately need a Savior. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Our problem is we're sinners before a holy and just God. And we can downplay God's holiness and justness and say He's loving, and He is, but there's still that issue with justice. There's still that issue with righteousness. There's still that issue that sin must be punished. We know that in our hearts. And it was. It was punished on the cross when Jesus raised His arms and said, It is finished. The resurrection was God's way of saying paid in full. The many witnesses who are living, as Paul wrote this letter, he says, are proof that Jesus rose from the dead. 
that he had conquered not only death, but he conquered sin. Because the bit, probably the two, two of the greatest problems that we have as human beings is this. The guilt of our sins and the fear of death. Really? Don't you think? That, 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 you know, we, I'm tired of going to funerals that, where I just walk out and I'm just totally depressed because there's no hope. Basically, basically what Paul's saying is that, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have died and He rose. And, and when we put our faith and trust in Him, we die but we live. So death is conquered. But not only that, here and now, there's a, there's a victory over sin that sin is paid for. You see, the resurrection was uh, incredibly important. But in, in, you know, you, you, and you may think, you may think, well, well, they believed in the resurrection in that day. It, this was something that was very common. Everyone believed. No, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. Um, for instance, the, the Greeks, we've talked a little bit about it. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, in the Greek worldview, the afterlife was the liberation of the soul from, from the body for them. The resurrection of the body would never have been part of any hope. They wanted to get rid of jettison the body. They didn't want the body. For the Jews, some of the Jews had a, uh, a future general resurrection, uh, which entitled, uh, which uh, the, when the entire world would be renewed, but they had no concept of an individual being raised from the dead. No concept of all, at all. They, they didn't. The people of Jesus' day were not conditioned to believe in a resurrection any more than we are. So why is this resurrection so important? Well, Paul says this. And jump down to verse 17 of chapter 15. This is on page 879. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ Jesus Christ are lost. And if our only hope is in Christ only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Basically, he says, if you believe in Christ and he didn't rise from the dead, your hope is hopeless. <laughs> you have no hope. But Paul says, he goes on to say that's not the case because in verse 20 he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Now, once, once we understand and believe the gospel, we're given a new hope. Just as Christ rose from the grave, so will we. And, and the point is, once we put our faith and trust in him, we realize that just as he rose one day, we too will rise. That's the point. And not only that, we're, we realize that forgiveness doesn't have to be something we wait for. Forgiveness is something that can take place today. And you, you may be here and you may say, uh, but you don't know what I've done, Pastor. You don't know the sins I've committed. And I'm, I don't believe that God could ever forgive me. And that, that sounds very humbling, doesn't it? That, it sounds like a very humble statement. Uh, God, God could never forgive me for what I've done. I've, I've sinned. It, I've done some very dark things. I've never, no one on the planet knows what I've, some of the things that I've done. And, and, and I've just gone too far. There's no way that God could forgive me. And I just want to say to you, that sounds very, very humble. But it's one of the proudest statements that you could ever make. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the Bible says very clearly that heaven knew that you were a sinner. And God knows your heart. And he, knows, he doesn't just see your actions. He knows what's behind your actions. So he already knows. 
And, and heaven sent Jesus to give his life. And Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. So for you to say, he can't forgive me, you're saying to the God of the universe, I know better than you. I am the clay that you, and you're the potter, but I know better than you. I know that you can't forgive me, and we're saying that to the creator of the world who says, it is finished. And, and so it's not, an, it's not a humble statement. It's a very proud statement. The point is, when Jesus said it is finished, he said, you are forgiven. The moment you ask for forgiveness, you are forgiven. You don't deserve it. It's not about whether you deserve it or not. When we place our trust in him, we're given a new eternal resurrection, a new hope that is based on the resurrection. We're given forgiveness of sin. And Jesus basically says, not only will I give you a forgiveness of sin, but I'll give you a new hope for tomorrow. I'll give you a new hope that goes beyond the grave. Jesus talked about that. Jump back to page A23. This is John 14. So Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples because they're, they, they, uh, he, they don't know he's going to lead them. They think he's going to lead them, but he's really going to lead them. And so he prepares them. He tries to prepare them. And in John 14, verse 1, he says this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And the answer is no, I wouldn't do that. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't, Thomas. No, we don't, Lord. No, Lord. Thomas said, we have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And and the point I want you to see is Jesus was saying to his disciples, and he's saying to us, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, He's saying, when you put your trust in me, not only are your sins forgiven here and now, but there's a hope that goes beyond the grave. There's a new hope that you have. And he basically says, and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be also. We're going back to the garden where God and Adam and Eve walked together. They, they dwelt together. And and ultimately, Jesus is saying there's a day coming for those of you who put your trust in me will be forgiven of your sins, but you'll give it a new hope beyond the grave that when you die, you live forever with me in that perfect place. Do you have this hope of a future resurrection? The Bible makes it clear that we're not made right with God by our own good works or deeds. We're not made right by our own efforts. Or, but we're, we're made right by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. The only way that we can receive the benefit of Christ's life and death and resurrection is by putting our complete trust in Him alone. Have you done that? Uh, it's amazing how many people have not really, Paul says, well, as long as you hold on to the gospel, of course, you may not have really heard the gospel. And there are people that will be worshiping this weekend and Christmas Eve and Christmas next weekend. And, and, and they're, they think they're following Jesus. They think, and their faith is really not in Christ, it's in themselves. 
I read an article recently, um, and it was written by a well-meaning person, and they were describing, it was a Christmas article, and they were describing uh, about Mary, and they were saying lessons, three lessons we can learn from Mary. And, you know, it was, I, I thought that what this person wrote was true. I said, that's true. I mean, you can learn from Mary. And it was, uh, wasn't, you know, I mean, it wasn't, but I, I got done and I go, this, this bothers me. The reason it bothered me wasn't because anything that they said wasn't true. It bothered me because it had nothing to do with Jesus. It was like, here's how you can live a better life. And I'm thinking, but that's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem isn't that I need to live a better life. The biggest problem is that I need a Savior to to forgive me, that I need hope for beyond the grave. And until Christ comes into my life, I can't live a better life. I can't follow the example of Mary. And and so the the point is, it it can't be all about Mary. It can't be all about Peter. It can't be all about Paul. It's got to be all about Jesus. One of the most famous Old Testament verses that we read during this season is Isaiah 9-6. It's all about Jesus. He's the God. He is God, uh, the Son who became a man for us. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. And of course, we know that the the fulfillment is Jesus. And now we, we come to a passage where... The, the major cults, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, come to this verse, and, and they, can I just say this, and I'm not trying to be offensive here, but let's be clear that when you reject the Trinity, when you reject the deity of Christ, you are not part of Christianism. You are a cult. You are outside of Orthodox Christianity, which has held for hundreds and hundreds of years that Jesus is God. He is not just God. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They are co-eternal and co-equal. And, and here's a verse that is speaking about Jesus. And it's, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government, government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God. Wait a minute here. <laughs> Who is this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. This passage speaks of Jesus that he was coming and and he didn't come as the ruler, he came as the servant savior. And if you're not uh and so the question is you heard the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day, and then he appeared to witnesses. The, the, but the essence of the gospel is Jesus Christ died for my sins, and he rose on the third day. That's the essence of the gospel. So the question is, have you trusted in this gospel message? Or are you trusting in your own behavior, your own belief system, your own family tradition, your own good words? You're, 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 you're ahead of the queue as far as you're in a higher percentile than the rest of humanity. Uh, where are you at? Where are you at? It's one thing to, to know this. It's another thing to believe it. The, the demons know this. Satan has better theology than anyone in this room. But he doesn't believe it. I mean, he doesn't 
He doesn't obey it. He doesn't follow it. He's, uh, he's opposed to it. So it's not about having the right theology. It's not believing in God. Because we say, to, well, well, they believe in God. Well, good. So do the, James says, so do the devils. <laughs> this is one of those times where we really need to say, Paul is saying, if you trust in Christ, if you realize that you desperately need a Savior, that God's a holy God and his, he is just, but he's holy, and somebody has to pay the price, and you can't. And so he sent his son to pay the price that you couldn't pay. He gave his life on a cross for you, and he said, it is finished. And if you'll call upon him, not only will your sins be forgiven, but you'll have a new hope that goes beyond the grave. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says to the church of Corinth, you have a new forgiveness. You have a new hope. You can hold your head up. You can look with expectation beyond the grave. That's the hope that we carry into Christmas. And it comes because a baby was born in a manger. That heaven, God, became flesh for us. Are you trusting in him or not? Eternity is going to determine. Your eternity is going to be determined on what you do with that question. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. So, Father, it's easy for us to play fast and loose with your justice, with your holiness. But in the end, you are God, and we desperately need a Savior. And you knew that, and you sent your Son. It may be that there's somebody here this morning, Father, that has never crossed that line of faith, but they don't know how to. And it's as simple as praying a prayer like this. Dear Father, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I need a Savior, and I realize that Savior is Jesus. I don't understand what this all means, but I give my life to Him today, right now, because He gave His life for me. And I ask that He would come into my life and to begin to do a work. I thank You, Father, that my sins are forgiven not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done for me. That my sins were on him on the cross. That the punishment that I deserved, he took for me. And thank you, Father, that he rose. And that there, that means, number one, I'm forgiven. And number two, that uh, when I die, I live. Thank you for that hope. Father, for anybody who prayed that prayer, I pray that they'd let somebody know. I prayed that prayer to receive Christ today as Savior. For those of us who may have prayed that prayer, maybe many, many years ago, may, may we never be amazed. May we, ne- may we never not just, may, may we never get to a place where we're just not amazed and stunned by your love and grace and forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior, for giving us hope for giving us forgiveness, for giving us life beyond the grave. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.